Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, my guest today is Dr. Grace Lawton, the economist and founding director of the Inclusion Initiative at the London School of Economics. All of Grace's research aims to gain a single understanding, why some individuals succeed in life and others don't. She's an expert on the effects of bias, discrimination, and technology changes, and sits on the UK government's social mobility task force. Last year, Grace published Think Big, Take Small Steps, and Build the Future You Want, a practical framework for aspiring business leaders on how to use behavioral insights to achieve the future that they seek. Now, to tell us about Grace, welcome to Changemakers. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. And especially that I've just learned that you actually are an LSE alum as well, which is fantastic. I, I was, yes, in the, back in 92. And how the world's changed since then. But I was I was thinking, though, is that about that, is that the LSE stimulates a sense of restlessness with the world, that you want to change things. I mean, I think that's a kind of, that, that feels like a sort of part of its ongoing mission and part of its authentic history. I don't know whether that whether you feel it's as true today as it was then. So I think, you know, the, the roots of LSE being all about social change, sometimes when I'm on the campus, I have to squint to see it, to be very honest, because, you know, <laughs> like everyone else, we've been shaped by trends that have come along and kind of quests to follow those trends. But I will say during the COVID-19 pandemic and particularly after the COVID-19 pandemic, it has been heartening to see our students really, you know, push for issues both on campus and outside campus. Mm. the staff doing exactly the same so it is definitely still there the desire to shape the world and I think as well as doing rigorous um, research to support shaping the world we actually have people who are out there pushing for change which makes me quite excited to be part of the community. I'm just thinking back back in back in the day I mean I can remember going into the refectory and popping myself down and and looking up and there was a guy called Roy Medvedev who was a famous Russian emigre and I just thought you know here is one of the most significant thinkers in the world at that time and he's just sat there having a sandwich and I just thought what a wonderful privilege that is to be in a place where that happens. And we get that a lot I mean it it surprises me how many people I've had sandwiches with who I never ever thought that I would meet and I think you know part of that experience it helps you realize that they're just human beings like everybody else which is absolutely cathartic, to be honest it, with you. It, <laughs> isn't it well let's talk about human beings because I want to talk about think big this is your book I thought it's a cracker I have to say I've really found it a really uplifting read but also got me to think about myself and how I think about the world and the biases that I have and I just you know maybe maybe we we should start with where you finish slow down pay attention and always be kind tell us a bit more about the book yeah so I mean I I wrote for about 10 years I was giving uh, talks in corporate companies and I would talk about bias and I've never been an advocate for unconscious bias training. So I would always say that doesn't work. And then I would talk about what we can do to create change. And everything that I would say relied on having a CEO or someone very senior in the organization agree to the change. And you could see actually people being really enthralled with my talk all the way to that last 10 minutes when I talked about policy changes. And then I would get some grumpy faces and people would say to me, you know, I came tonight, I've just started my career and you're telling me the only hope of the bias is changing is is if the CEO makes a decision that that is so. So what I wanted to do with Think Big was actually give people tools who might be struggling in work, they might, you know, be plateauing, they might feel that the world is against them, to take control of their career. And actually, it's kind of a roadmap to figuring out 
what you can actually control, what you want to do with the rest of your life, and then encouraging these really small steps very, very regularly, every day if you can, every week if not, to get you to where you want to be. Now, Rory Tuvland described it as sound in theory and useful in practice. No disagreements with that. But I also thought really emotive because I think there, it, it's packed with stories, isn't it? There's so much of the so much of how you bring the advice to life is, is the storytelling. And I think that's part of its magic because when people talk to you about unconscious biases, you sort of, you sort of assume that it's starting from the premise of why you are wrong. You sort of bring it to life in terms of, well, this is what you can do. And I thought I, I thought it was just a really, a really uplifting read in terms of how you can take control of the life that you want. And I, I suppose for, for those that, you know, are, are yet to read the book or might be interested in the book, bring it to life for us, Grace, in terms of what, what will you get in terms of this almost manual for life, I thought. So I think the the first thing is what well, so think big I think is different to a lot of the books that are out there in that it is actually grounded in evidence. So it's heavily referenced. So if you're an academic kind of nerd like I am, you will be very happy. But I think for everybody else, what I would say is that it starts off by really trying to get people to imagine their life without constraints. Because I think very often when we're dreaming, we put lots of constraints. I don't have time. I'm not good enough. I don't have the skills. You know, I couldn't possibly do that. And then once you've thought about that, to think about now that you've imagined your future, what will you be doing on a day-to-day basis? And fundamentally, what's really striking to me about careers is that people set off on journeys to become lawyers, surgeons, accountants, bankers, and they have a really bad idea on the tasks on a day-to-day basis. And I think if you want to have a long career journey where you feel, you know, uh, content, and I won't use the word happy, I'm going to use the word content. If you feel content, you need to really enjoy those tasks. And once you've identified that big think journey, once you've identified those small tasks, the rest of the book is about talking to you what are the biases that are most likely holding you back so I go through fear of failure loss aversion confirmation bias what are the biases that other people would put in front of you and there will be lots regardless of who you are that you can actually circumvent in various ways how can you become more resilient which mm. for me I think well I'm, 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 I'm kind of changing my mind a little bit but at the po- that point I thought that was the most important soft skill that we can curate now I think adaptability is probably kind of getting getting their level and last what can you change about your environment and you know I focus on the physical environment in one chapter because we can make very easy tweaks to the environment that we're sitting on on a day-to-day basis that actually changes how we think in in a particular moment and ultimately can also help the think big journey you know obviously you are an academic and and you've written from the perspective of an academic but but I mean quite often that can mean with respect to academics quite unreadable unreadable books I mean I I felt that um, I felt this book was so readable and and that's partly because of the structure of it in terms of the sort of bite-sized sort of chunks and things you can take out of it but I suppose also the premise that that you know you can create big change by baby steps I suppose is how I would summarize it you know lots of things that can add up to really sort of great outcomes And, and and I felt quite uplifted by that because I suppose now a lot of people will will spend time in their lives wondering have I lived up to my potential you know had, had you know the, the good life is something that has been debated 
through time and through time and memorial. But, but but actually, I feel that this feels like a really 21st century take on how to feel good about yourself, as well as creating a better world as a result. So within and without, I thought. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really good analogy. I mean, I will say when I wrote Think Big First and when it went to Penguin, they did send it back and say, it sounds too academic. Can you check? So a lot of my work, and, you know, and, I, and I really took that seriously. I was very grumpy for a day, I will say, when I got the feedback. But I did take it seriously. And I really tried. They wanted me to kind of put myself into it and stories of people that I met. And I really tried to do that as a way of bringing the reader along. So I, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for you saying that. And on the small steps, I think the, the easiest way I can summarize it is if you look at the week that you've had and it's a usual week and the habits that are embedded in that week, that's the person you're going to be in five years time. Yeah. So yeah. What have you done this week in order to get to where you want to be in five years time? And in, in some ways, the book then is kind of scaffolding to make sure that you actually stick to your plans and show up for yourself. And more importantly, show up for this kind of idea of a future self that you have. Mm. When you look at you know, the, the state of the world right now feels feels very gloomy. L- lots of things that, that I suppose feel like the antithesis of thinking big. I mean, if you were to sort of use your sort of book as an advice piece for the community, society, world around you, what's the advice you'd give? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it comes down to what are the small steps that are being put in place in the community to get a community to where it wants to be in five years time. And and the same with the government, you know, I would say kind of what are the what are the what is the scaffolding that's being put in place now that in five years time, Britain will have walked away from this period of high inflation and high costs. And look again, like the country that we were, you know, seven, eight years ago when people weren't feeling these weren't feeling these pressures. And I think we don't do that often enough. We're too short term. I think the government is too short term, even within communities, because we feel pressure. We're too short term. And definitely as individuals, we need to do some more long term thinking. Is that all governments or is it this particular one? I mean, do do you get a sense that that's just the system we've got or is it just or does it change in, in terms of chapters of change, I guess? I think it is all governments. I mean, I think at the moment, our government is particularly short term, but I think the the problem with um, democracy when we vote people into government is that they will have short term thinking because they're always thinking about getting elected the next time. I can't think of too many examples of what I would call altruistic politicians who sacrifice their own career to kind of run a country in a way. Uh, and, and that's a selection problem as well, right? So maybe there's some of your listeners who need to go into politics and say, I'm going to give it four years, create really good change. They mightn't be exactly the change that would get me re-elected, but I know that I'm creating change that would have last, um, lasted. Well, it's often, isn't it, the reluctant leaders, isn't it? Those that, that were never going to do something or never wanted to do something that turned out to be the best at it. Yeah, that's true. Mm. That's true. Tell us about the inclusion initiative. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, so I set the inclusion initiative up in LSE in November 2020. And I thought I was crazy to go ahead during the COVID-19 pandemic, but... I was one of these optimists that thought it would be over at any minute. So I never expected it to last as long as it did. So that's why I set it up. I wasn't being great. That's your own... Is that your own confirmation bias? It is, it is. I really thought every time I was thinking two more months, it'll be over. We'll, we'll, uh, even now, I think that there's, there's never going to be another lockdown. And somebody said to me yesterday, they think there will be. So the inclusion initiative, the idea really is that inclusion is good for business, right? So, and it sounds like a very obvious statement, possibly to your listeners, but we don't act like that in business. So very often in business, there's in-group, out-groups, there's politics, there's exclusion. There's people who are diverse who come 
into the company who are forced to conform in order to kind of accelerate through the company, which is really bad for the company because what they're bringing them in for is their diverse perspectives in the first place. So we do three things, essentially. We work with companies to ensure that they become more inclusive. And given my background, a lot of that is actually looking to see whether or not the changes they are making are working because most companies don't actually do that, which 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 sounds like a no-brainer. Um, the second is measuring inclusion using data outside the firm to give to investors so they can change who they choose to invest in. And the last then is that we educate inclusive leaders. So we do executive education where we teach people about how to become inclusive leaders, which ultimately boils down to making sure that everybody in your team has equal opportunities, visibility and voice. And then also outside the team, you're recruiting for diversity. And, you know, the, the, I, I want to come on to this because, you know, you, you, there's so many provocations that, that you know, that, that you bring to this in terms of things like, you know, the, the flaws of unconscious bias training, the need for machines to take over career choices. But before we get on to all of that, I want to go back to the specific year that you set up, because I think for listeners, it's worth going back to 2020 to remember, you know, that alongside your initiative was major civil rights demonstrations, major changes, you know, very much in the wake of, of, of things like the death of George Floyd, big seismic changes in the way that we, we viewed the world. Tell us about how that affected your thinking in terms of the organisation that you were going to go on to create. So we committed in March to the school 2020 to set up and start in November. So it was before George, George Floyd was murdered. And I think seeing what happened in the US made me double down on my decision to continue to open in November 2020. So some people said, maybe you should delay, wait till after COVID. And I think when that happened, I kind of thought, actually, what I really want for the LSC is a place where I'm not determining the research agenda. It's been determined by companies. It's been determined by the diverse people who I hire, which is weird, actually, by the way, for somebody who sets up a centre in any university. Usually they determine the research agenda. But secondly, I wanted there to be space to have conversations around you know George Floyd these hard hard, um, hard conversations that potentially weren't being weren't, weren't having in other organizations and you know quite soon after the murder of George Floyd um, Erica Broadnock one of our researchers led a piece of research that looked specifically at black professional women and one thing that came out of that is well the big big thing that came out of that is what you can actually do to help advance black professional women but the other thing that came out of it was black women were very fatigued actually after the murder of George Floyd because there was a sense that companies spoke about it because it was on the news and it was topical and they were drawn into hard conversations but the real change hadn't happened and again if I think about why why I want the inclusion of the LSC I want us because the good thing about being an academic is that you can be quite contrary and you can say to people your change isn't working your glacial pace you're not moving you're not moving fast enough and you can be quite blunt about it in the way consultants won't actually be with folk a lot of the time and I think having that voice and having other researchers alongside myself who had that voice in in other domains um, is becoming much more important in our society. I interviewed Kerry Kennedy who runs Robert F Kennedy Human Rights and she talks about her father's relationship with various communities but but certainly as it pertained to the late 60s and this rising sense of consciousness and a desire for change. But what she said was that ultimately you see ebbs and flows in this. You know, you see peaks and troughs. It's not a, there's not a linear line of progress. And I suppose my question to you is that, you know, 2020 looked like it it might go somewhere in terms of change. Here we are in 22. Does the lack of visible you know, people on the street mean that things are getting better or not? 
What do you mean by the lack of visible? Well, well, so, so we're not we're not seeing the same sort of like major movements in terms of people on the on the street. So 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 some people might turn around and say, well, actually, what that means is, well, therefore things must be getting better. Or, or has it been suppressed again? I mean, where are we? in, I suppose in in the kind of in the sort of the evolution of change and and how you feel about it in terms of where we are. I mean, I think specific to racism, and I think you could say the same about sexism or homophobia. I think that we are on, a, there's nowhere is dismantling the systematic biases. So if I think about systemic racism that are embedded in organizations and in society, there isn't really any kind of beacon that I can point to of, of people who are doing really hard work in that regard. Where I think work is happening is on the incremental. So we're really paying attention to who's in boardrooms, who's in your team, who's in meetings. And I think that if we are, if we are successful in that, we will eventually see change. So, you know, this is the idea that, that it would take a very, very long time, provided those people aren't forced into conformity. But, uh, you know, it's so glacial, it would be hard not to be mm. pessimistic that it's not actually happening. And I, you're right, people aren't on the streets at the moment, but coming through our research, particularly the qualitative parts where we get to speak to so many people is a frustration. You know, people are frustrated about a backlash against women, about a backlash against the Black Lives Matters movement, a backlash against trans, the trans community. You know, so all of these conversations are still happening. So people mightn't be on the streets, but they're definitely on social media. And they're definitely in their living rooms talking to friends and their communities about it. There's so many themes and ideas that, that, that you bring up, both, both in terms of the book, but also in terms of the ongoing discourse that you, you engage people with. And I suppose let's start with un- unconscious bias in terms of give us a definition for a listener that's saying, look, I'm reading about this in the newspaper and they might have their own bias about unconscious bias. So give us a working definition and what should people be thinking about when they think about it? So if you come to LSE to learn about behavioural science, one of the first things you learn is about system one, system two. So system one is your fast brain, you're on autopilot. System two is when you're slow and deliberate. So when you're on system one, this fast autopilot brain, you're at the biggest risk of having unconscious biases. And that basically means that you make decisions in a way that's actually suboptimal. And that's the crux of what an unconscious so, bias is. So lots of gut instinct actually means lots of unconscious bias. Yeah, I mean, it, it isn't as straightforward as that because the gut instinct is actually very valuable for people who make decisions over and over again. So your coffee, for example, Michael, you'll have had trial and error learning, and now you probably know you can go on autopilot to the best coffee shop. But when we're making decisions that are unusual to us, hiring a colleague, you know, choosing a spouse to marry, maybe choosing a house to purchase, all of these things are subjected to to our unconscious. And actually, even when I read something in the paper that's novel for the first time, my reaction is subject to these unconscious biases that have been honed throughout my life. Mm. I mean, there's no doubt about it is that you know, this is a main boardroom agenda where lots of companies are talking about change. I I interviewed very recently uh, Greg Hoffman, who was the CMO at Nike. He was their most powerful mixed race executive leader. And he was speaking about, I suppose, the difference between good intentions and good impact. Is this where unconscious bias is really, really does stop making the difference between 
I suppose, having a good intention and having a good action. I think it's not even just about good intentions. I think it's just when you you have no intention at all. So you can make decisions to, you know, give opportunities to people without necessarily thinking about it, but you'll be drawn to somebody who has greater affinity to you. And, you know, one of the things that, I, that I'm talking a lot about lately is that one of the biggest problems for progress isn't necessarily discrimination, although there is discrimination. So uh, please don't write me complaints about that. But it's favoritism is what people act on most in their unconscious. So if I'm mm. choosing something, I'm drawn to someone who is familiar to me to do a job in my house, to give an opportunity to um, in, in, in my place of work. And ultimately, this favoritism causes big, big, giant gaps. Now, you said it's time that humans hand over the hiring process to machines who do not have those tendencies. For, for my HR listeners that are, are listening to this interview, what, what, what's the message about, about their future? Well, you know, so, so, the, so I think they have a huge job, actually, in enabling inclusive leadership. I think that for me, I'm convinced when it comes to AI, AI does give biased decisions and it should be monitored by humans, but not humans who have skin in the game. Um, and I would think it more of a compliance folk than somebody who is in human resources. And I think, you know, the, the media for a very long time have told us over and over again that AI have biases. Well, why do they have biases? Because the humans who write them have biases. And I think the interesting thing is, is that we can consciously make choices that filter out some of the biases on AI we cannot control the biases that filter into interview rooms, the storytelling that filters into interview rooms. And one of the best things about machines is that they can tell stories. And one of the worst things about humans is that they can tell you very fanciful stories to support any decision that they might make on a day-to-day basis. Now, one of the areas I think you've been talking about that's, that's really interesting is, is the volatility in the workplace. And it's become known as the great resignation. People just, you know, turning around and turning their backs on on, on the jobs. And, and actually, the book, you know, has a, has a super case study of one of the cases of, of somebody who falls into a job and, you know, all of a sudden they've got a very powerful job, but then they suddenly turn around and go, my life must be more than this. And I, and I think that does speak to the journey a lot of people go on where they start to ask these existential questions. But I thought that, that you know, what, what you said in terms of what might come next, that the that the great resignation might, might turn into the great recruitment. I thought that was a quite an interesting sort of thought about what might come next. So, so explain that for us. Yeah, so I mean, so, so I, I, I tend not to call it the great resignation. Um, I tend to call it the great reshuffle, um, simply because I don't see people quitting. I see people moving. And that's what I think mm. you mean by, by the, the great recruitment. What's really happening is that, you know, many more people within organizations are movable now as compared to what they were in the past. So I saw a list of, so there's, there's these lists that go around in different industries that you might be aware of, Michael, of people who are movable within their company and people who aren't movable within their company. And these lists have gotten much longer over over period of time. And that's because people are really trying to figure out not necessarily the job. So they might be settled in the task they're doing in the job, but what kind of work-life balance do they want around the job? And having reflected over COVID, what are the conditions that I can put around myself that make me more productive on a day-to-day basis? And people are moving for that. They're moving for hybrid working. They're moving for more flexibility. So, you know, they're moving for other amenities that go outside salary, which I think is quite a fascinating trade of the labour market right now. And is the message to leaders that, you know, they need to create inclusive environments, I guess. And, and, and I suppose if, if, that, if that is the message, what's the advice you'd give to someone that's saying, right, I want to do this? What's a big idea you could give them to think big in their own world where they think we're not good enough? What's the step you'd advise them to take in terms of 
how they might begin the journey. So I think the first thing to say is when I talk about having inclusive cultures, it's probably different to what listeners are imagining. So they're probably imagining a bunch of happy workers. And that isn't the case at all. I I like the idea of workers being happy. So I'm not proposing that we actually make people miserable. But really what you want is a leader who makes sure that every person in the team gets to add value to the output, which is very different. So they're getting the best out of all of their talent. And I think for somebody who might want to start with that, equalizing voice, opportunities and visibility, they should focus on meetings. So really ask themselves when they're in the meeting, if you're the person who's chairing the meeting, you should be saying the least. You should be actively listening to what people are, um, have to say around the table. Um, you should be making sure that one or two people don't dominate the meeting and actually that everybody has a chance to speak. That doesn't mean that everyone speaks in every meeting because it's absolutely okay if you have nothing to say to stay quiet because time is actually quite precious. So we want to give people time back. And fundamentally, it's about the leader themselves after the meeting really taking check of who spoke, who didn't speak. And lastly, did you did you learn anything new in that meeting? So I think as a society, we've, we've started setting up meetings where we sit and we listen to one or two people dominate the conversation for 30 minutes, one hour. And that is the biggest detriment to our productivity, both as individuals, firms, and also all the way all the way through to the economy as a whole. So trying to rewind that and say, we only need meetings when they're productive, everyone gets to contribute, and that the leader takes responsibility for that dynamic is fundamentally the first step to being an inclusive leader. Yeah, I mean, I think it's that's a really it's a really interesting way of, of of pitching it because what I think the book also helps helps those leaders understand is what people around that table might be thinking. You know, and you actually say in the book about somebody who might just you know take a particular position where they just listen, they learn, and you know, but but actually the kind of the progress that you seek does require a very different way than than the way we're doing it. Let's go back though, in terms of what gets you to today, Grace, because you're an economist turned a a behavioral intelligence specialist. I'm presuming this this is a journey of self-discovery rather than a long-term plan that gets you to today, is that? I mean, give us a sense of, of sort of like the early stage for Grace in terms of what 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 you thought you wanted to do and where and, and actually what the breadcrumb trail might be that gets us to today. I mean, I think I hadn't I, I didn't know anything about what I wanted to do, Michael, to be very honest, to the point that actually when I did my oral exam when I was 16 for the leaving cert, the same as A-levels um, in the UK, I said that I wanted to work in a bank, um, firstly, because it was actually a very easy thing to say in French and I was very bad at language. <laughs> but secondly, because I just didn't know. So I said, just give me a I remember saying to the teacher, give me a career. That's what I'll tell them that I'm going to do. So I had no idea about what I wanted to do. And I think fundamentally, if you were to take some learning from me and also, I, you know, I grew up in um, I, I went to a school where only two people went to university. I was one of them. It wasn't a given that people would go on and do any third level education afterwards. And that was OK. So there wasn't really the impetus in the school that was kind of pushing me to necessarily do well either. So we didn't have career guidance in the way. Mm some of the kids will have today. And I ended up studying um, computer science, actually, as my first degree. I really hated it, I will say. And I married with that economics in the second year. So I ended up kind of doing double the subjects as a way not to drop out, but to kind of keep something that would keep me sane. And I always looked for opportunities for something that I found interesting in. And kind of the think big perspective where you're thinking big and you know that you're ambitious and you want to do something, but you don't know what it is. I'm really sympathetic to that because that was me really for most of kind of my formative formative years. And each opportunity has fed my next step. But I suppose a lot of economists are 
fascinated by the macro. They they they, they love the the big headwinds of change and how you can get a slide rule out. It, it, it strikes me that you are really motivated by people and their stories, so that the micro matters as well as the macro in terms of the the human experience. And it exudes in the pages of the book that actually you are a people person. How does that aspect? help you in, I mean I suppose it must help you in the job you do but how, how does it sort of is that your superpower I guess if I was to frame a question well sometimes it doesn't because what you describe people will say well is she a real economist I mean it's you know is, is, is she is she is she studying economics like, even though I'm studying like labor market skills the most fundamental things that actually make the economy work there will be still people who ask that um that question but for me I think it is I mean I think in some ways I find myself drawn to questions that are fundamentally really difficult to answer, that other people in in academia don't want to touch because they see that they're too risky for their career. So in some ways, I kind of, I swing for fences, I think more than than my colleagues would. But ultimately, it's about things that really interest me. And I I think Mm. one of the things that lets academia down today is that it's really moved towards kind of a game people play and they know if I write, you know, four papers in a certain thing, I'll get promoted and then I'll, I'll get to move on. But my work, and I did a bit of that in the start of my career, so I know what it's like to be in that circle. But I think my work now is really just fundamentally, I'm interested in the answers to these questions. I want to know, is is, is AI a better thing for hiring? I want to know, what can we do within a team in order to make it more inclusive and more productive? And that feeds the macro, that feeds the macro picture. If me as an individual is more productive, we should see more productivity in the economy. So last question, if if the mark of a good book is that it gets you to think, I ask myself the question throughout it, what am I really thinking big about? You know, I've, I've got a great sense of my own mortality, my own time on, on the planet in terms of how you can, you know, make a difference within it. That's a good that's a good outcome, I think, for a reader is to ask yourself questions. So my question to you is, what are you thinking big about, Grace? Oh, that's a really, really good question. Well, at the moment, I'm writing my second book. So I'm thinking I'm thinking bigger about that. Cool. <laughs> yeah. It won't be think bigger. It won't be think bigger. But I am. No, I'm kind of thinking. So it's interesting. So I, I've been trying to think about what to write for a long time. And I finally kind of come down to my my, my 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 theme. And I think fundamentally, it's about how can you actually write something that's distinctive that actually serves the reader. So they come away, just like we should from every meeting saying, actually, I really learned something new. And for me, as, as someone who's kind of growing at the moment, one of the things that I think allows me to think big, and this is where I'm kind of putting a lot of my time, is really learning the other lessons from all of the major disciplines that we have in society, you know, it kind of in, in, across the spectrum, both the LSE and the social sciences and in the sciences. And I think the reason that I'm doing that is that will allow me join dots that I don't necessarily see at the moment. So in some ways, I'm on a journey of uncertainty where I'm learning material that I fundamentally believe will allow me join dots that I can't see today. Oh, brilliant. Well, listen, may the journey continue. Dr. Grace Lord, and thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Thank you, Michael. You're awesome. Really appreciate it. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? I think this could